I'm back. Ladies and gentlemen, it is good to be back with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Tanner Hoops in studio. Glad to have you along as always. And I'm back at the right time. A packed show today. I tell you what, a few days in Iowa was much needed. Recharge the batteries before football starts. Get to see some family, friends. See some things you don't normally see up here in the UP. I knew I was going back to Iowa. About an hour after I got home, you know, where I grew up, I went into town. I wanted to see how much the town had changed in my seven or so months since I've been gone. I wanted to see some people I hadn't seen in a while. And I noticed a few things that I hadn't seen in a while. Things are exclusively Iowan. Things like signs telling you to watch for stop signs that are hidden behind tall corn at an intersection. Radio commercials for beer judging contests going on in the next town over. Things like that. It just hits you. That you're in Iowa when things like that start coming on. But I tell you what, it's good to be back here in the Upper Peninsula. I flew in last night about 9 o'clock. My flight touched down just outside of Marquette. And the sunset was just gorgeous. It was a gorgeous sunset last night. I'm sure many of you saw it. And boy, I tell you what, from cloud level, it was an absolute beauty. I put those up on Facebook, by the way. But I tell you what, we've got a lot of sports to get to today. Ezekiel Elliott. The drama surrounding his holdout continues to grow. We have a highly successful basketball coach in our area has announced his resignation. We're going to get some details on that coming up over the course of the next hour. Plus, Charlie Bramer is going to join me. We have the Wisconsin Sports Update and much more to get to. We've got a lot of football talk because, man, football's on the brain. We had kind of football the other night. Hall of Fame game, Broncos, Falcons. Some of you watched that. Some of you probably didn't. I tell you what, football is finally back, or at least it is on the cusp of being back. Which reminds me, don't forget to check out our high school kickoff show. That's going to air six times before the first high school football broadcast here on ESPN-UP. I'm going to chat with all five Marquette County football coaches. They're going to tell us about their teams and what they expect from their season. First airing of it is this Saturday. Schedule is up on our Facebook page as well as on our Twitter. But I tell you what, let's start here with the NFL. Because again, we got football in the brain here at ESPN-UP. And I did this over the weekend. We're going to do more of these. I put it out on social. Send me your questions. I'll answer the questions here in the sports pen. And I got a pretty good response out of it. I really like this. We're going to do some more of it. We're going to do it with other topics. But we did a football inbox. I got quite a few good questions here I want to share with you before we get Charlie here. But let me give you some of these and let me give you my answers to them. The first one that I have on here is Kyle Shanahan of the 49ers on the hot seat in his third season as head coach. Apparently, we've got some 49ers fans in our listenership. It is not hot. Kyle Shanahan's seat is not hot, but it is warm, and it is getting warmer. I see him in a similar spot as Pat Shermer, second-year head coach of the New York Giants. Shanahan is an offensive genius. I know what happened in the Super Bowl a few years ago. Just run the ball, you beat Tom Brady, and you win a Super Bowl. I know he should have done that. All that aside, he is still an offensive genius. He's a guy with all kinds of potential, much like his quarterback, but they haven't been able to get the job done their first couple of years in San Francisco. In Jimmy Garoppolo's case, it's because he can't stay healthy. In Kyle Shanahan's case, it's because he's working with quarterbacks like C.J. Beathard and Nick Mullins in a division that's really good. Now, Shermer and Shanahan are comparable because neither team is expected to do much this year. They're not supposed to be playoff teams, and the front offices know that. John Lynch, David Gettleman, they're not expecting Super Bowls out of their young head coaches. But when you're not expecting Super Bowls and you know you're rebuilding, you know you're retooling, what do you expect? Consistent growth. 
Have the 49ers done that the last couple of years? No, but largely that's been due to injury. However, how much longer can that be an excuse? How much longer is that going to fly? At some point, no matter how talented of a quarterback you have, fans are going to get tired of saying, oh, maybe next year he'll stay healthy. Maybe next year we put it all together. No, at some point the fans are going to get tired of that. They want to win now. They're tired of being optimistic. They want to feel on top of the football world. And it's been a while since San Francisco's been up there. The closest they've been to it was six years ago when they were in the Super Bowl and got beat by Baltimore. So it's one thing to have a good quarterback who can't stay healthy that gives you optimism. After a few years, that gets old. So it's not only time for Shanahan to put up or shut up, it's time for Jimmy Garoppolo as well. And again, it's not his fault. He's been hurt. But at some point, if you're not able to stay on the field, you're a liability to your team. If your team is building around you and you can't stay on the field, you're a liability. You're not helping your cause. That's why there's some pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo this year. It's weird to say pressure to not get hurt. Isn't that every player's goal? Yeah, it is. But when you're the quarterback, you're the center stone of that offense. That's why there's pressure on Jimmy G this year. That's why there's pressure on Shanahan. They haven't been growing consistently his first couple of years in San Francisco, but a lot of that you can attribute to his best player getting injured. How much longer is that going to fly, though? Not going to be much longer. So no, his seat isn't hot, but it is getting warm. Same with Pat Shermer. Can he improve on New York's 5-11 mark last year? If he doesn't, his seat is going to start to get a little hot. I'd argue that Shermer is on a shorter leash than Shanahan is. And I tell you what, their seats are not hot yet. They are getting warm. At some point, results are going to speak louder than optimism. Question number two, will Kyler Murray actually be an NFL quarterback or is 4-12 and and a trade after two seasons more likely? I like Kyler Murray. I really do. And I think he will translate to the NFL in the right system. If a guy like Jared Goff can be a successful NFL quarterback, make people think he's an MVP candidate, some people really think that, and bring a team to the Super Bowl with C.J. Anderson as their top option at running back and one of his best wide receiver options going down, then yes, Kyler Murray can make it in the NFL. But he needs to be in the right system, and he needs to have the right head coach. Offensively, I think he does. A lot of people don't like Cliff Kingsbury. He went 35-42 and 42 at Texas Tech and got fired. Less than a year later, he's got a job as a head coach in the NFL. I tell you what, this can work. This can work for Arizona. And the biggest reason why I think it will work is because they did a great job hiring a defensive coordinator. They got Vance Joseph, former head coach of the Denver Broncos. He was fired last year, and he's humble enough to work under a much younger and less accomplished head coach, and he's going to run his defense for him. Essentially, they're going to be co-head coaches. Kingsbury's going to run the offense, which he's excellent at, And Joseph is going to run the defense. That's a great tandem. If there's any system that Kyler Murray could be successful in, he's found it. Cliff Kingsbury is that guy. There are only a handful of coaches that could bring out the best in Kyler Murray. And his best, as we saw at Oklahoma, is something really, really special. The ceiling for him, the potential for him is so high, that's exactly why I said he should be an NFL player rather than go to baseball. Ceiling is much higher. There's a much greater risk and probably less money. But the ceiling for him to be an all-time great is much higher. Whoever would have thought Doug Flutie or Drew Brees would turn out to be the quarterbacks they were. Similar stature type as Kyler Murray. He has got the perfect head coach to bring out the best offensively in him. And as you saw at Oklahoma, he can score with the best of them. So if there's any coach in the NFL that's going to make Kyler Murray a success, he's found it. Other than maybe Sean McVay, maybe Matt LaFleur, Zach Taylor... 
We haven't seen them coach a game yet, so it's still too early to tell. But he's got that guy in Cliff Kingsbury. It's for that reason. I believe Kyler Murray is going to have success in the NFL. Plus, he's surrounded with weapons like Larry Fitzgerald, David Johnson, providing Johnson stays healthy this year. Arizona might be okay. Now, they're in a really tough division where they are expected to finish last. They might improve as a team this year by one or two wins, but they're still going to finish last in that division, barring something unforeseen. I'm hoping things work out for him in the NFL. I hope things work out for Kingsbury because I tell you what, they were both so much fun to watch in college. I can't wait to see them together in a league that's gearing more and more toward offense. Sleeper teams from the NFC and the AFC. ESPN just put out a list talking about some teams that are expected to make a big jump since last season. The Panthers were on there. The Giants were on there. The Jaguars were on there. I see that as low-hanging fruit, and I'll tell you why. The Panthers are going to bounce back this year. They've got a good enough group. Last year was a disappointment in a huge way. They've got way too good of a group to have a year as bad as last year. They set the bar low for themselves. Of course they're going to have a bounce back year. That's low-hanging fruit to me. The Jaguars, they're two years away from an AFC championship appearance. And Nick Foles is an upgrade over Blake Bortles. If Nick Foles plays about half of what he was in Philadelphia, he'll still probably be better than Blake Bortles. Jacksonville is going to be better this year because, again, they set the bar so low for themselves last season. And I don't even need to tell you how low the Giants set the bar for themselves. And I'm not sure they are going to be better than last year. They're going to be essentially without a wideout for the first four weeks of the season. They're going out and getting guys that have been on the practice squad for other teams and gotten cut. That means Evan Ingram and Saquon Barkley are going to be Eli's best friends in the first four weeks. All low-hanging fruit. And I'm not even sure about the Giants if they're going to be better than they were last year. I tell you what, some teams that are going to be better than last year. And the NFC, I believe the Minnesota Vikings will be the most improved team, followed closely by the Atlanta Falcons. I think the Vikings are going to win their division. I like what Mike Zimmer does there. He lays the foundation for an offense that complements his defense. It's going to be a ground-and-pound attack for the Vikings. That's what they want to do. That's what they love, and that's why their defense is so good. It's all about time possession and ground control. Kevin Stefanski is offensive coordinator. He'll be calling the plays, but they made an absolute steal getting Gary Kubiak as an offensive analyst. It's going to be his system. Let's be honest. Gary Kubiak is essentially going to be the offensive coordinator. He won't be calling plays, but he's going to design the system for the Vikings that's going to complement that defense. That was an absolute home run by general manager Rick Spielman. That is going to play huge dividends. I believe the Vikings will be the most improved team in the NFC this year. Atlanta, I think, is going to take a step forward. I'm not ready to say that they're a playoff team, though. They missed the postseason last year. They went below 500 for the first time in Dan Quinn's tenure there. However, he's another guy that focuses on defense and an offensive-heavy league, but he does it with a pass-heavy quarterback in Matt Ryan. It's kind of a make-or-break year for Matt Ryan. Does he still have something left in the tank? He's on the wrong side of 30, and he's not getting any younger. People are starting to wonder, does Matty Ice still have it? This is a big year for him, especially with Julio Jones, who's maybe the most effective 30-year-old in NFL history. Again, I'm not ready to say that Atlanta is going to be a playoff team this year, but they're going to be a lot better. I think Seattle's going to be an improved team this year. I think they'll win that division. They've quietly had a really good offseason. They've gotten better, while L.A. has lost quite a few pieces out there in the NFC West. I think Seattle, Minnesota, and Atlanta will be the three most improved teams in the NFC this year. And the AFC, the two most improved teams are going to come from the same division, Pittsburgh and Cleveland. And Cleveland will be better. 
I'm not ready to say they're a playoff team because they've got so many divas in that locker room. Whatever can go wrong is going to go wrong at some point. It just will. It's inevitable. In Pittsburgh's case, they've got a winning culture. They are without distractions, at least we think, going into this season. I think they get back to the playoffs this year as AFC North champions. Best quarterback in the league. I tell you what, while I was in Iowa this weekend, I met up with plenty of family and friends. We all like to talk about sports, and that's what we did, specifically fantasy football. If you had a top five list of quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, essentially a wish list, who'd you go with? That's how I think of this question. Top five quarterbacks in the NFL. For me, there are five that are head and shoulders above everybody else. Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Andrew Luck, and Patrick Mahomes. Not necessarily in that order. I'm not ready to get into ordering them yet. I just know those five are better than everybody else. The next five, Cam Newton, Russell Wilson, Ben Roethlisberger, Deshaun Watson, and Phillip Rivers. Again, in no particular order, those are the top two tiers of quarterback. And then you got a few guys like Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, guys you can't totally say for sure belong in any tier because we haven't seen a big enough sample size from them yet. However, if I'm drafting in fantasy football this year and I get one of those top five quarterbacks, I am really, really comfortable with that. Breeze, Brady, Rodgers, Mahomes, Leck. And I tell you what, that leads me into question number five. Who is your MVP pick this year? They must have missed that episode. It's Andrew Luck. Guys, I'm all in on Andrew Luck as the MVP this year. If he stays healthy throughout the course of the season, he plays a full season, Andrew Luck is going to be this year's MVP. For one thing, I don't think the committee is going to award a guy MVP two years in a row, especially if he can't follow that up. And I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes is going to have a down year, but he set the bar so high for himself that if he exceeds last season with fewer weapons around him, We may be talking about Patrick Mahomes as the greatest quarterback of all time in just his second season as a starter. That's why I'm saying to wow the committee enough to the point where they make him MVP two years in a row, Mahomes is going to have to set the bar even higher than he did last year. And last year was incredible. Andrew Luck bounced back after a 1-5 and start where his team really didn't play very well, and he was able to regroup and lead that team to a torrid run in the back end of the season. If he plays that way all year long, I don't think the committee has any choice but to give Andrew Luck this year's MVP. I wouldn't be surprised if Mahomes gets it, because he is one heck of a quarterback, especially if Luck gets hurt, then Mahomes is going to be the front runner again. But I tell you what, I'm going all in on Andrew Luck as this year's most valuable player in the NFL. I tell you what, let's take a timeout. When we come back, Charlie Bramer is going to join me for the Wisconsin Sports Update. We got all that and more to break down next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. It is time for the Wisconsin Sports Update. Charlie Bramer in studio with us. And Monday's your usual day. We usually check in with you after the weekend. It's been a couple of weeks since we had a Monday to do it. I appreciate you being flexible. Appreciate you being here. I'm I'm really glad to be here, and I, I'm kind of glad we moved it to a Tuesday this week because yeah. that weekend series was not good for <laughs> for the Brewers. Last night's a better game to talk about. Much better. So they snap a four-game losing streak last night with a 9-7 win over Pittsburgh. Are they the coldest team in baseball since the All-Star break? Let me give you Pittsburgh's numbers. Since the All-Star break, the Pirates are 4-19. They have appeared in the playoffs three times in 12 years under this front office. 
And this is a franchise that has been really successful over the course of the last 100 years or so. And this maybe looks like the worst version of the Pirates we may have ever seen. Yeah, you know, I mean, I remember growing up, there were some pretty poor Pirates teams. This one, it, it's just kind of strange. They just, uh, because, because they'll go through their hot streaks, you know. And then and then looking at their offensive production, they're, they're like just such an anomaly offensively overall as a team. They're second in the National League in average, but they're like second to last in runs scored mm-hmm. or something like that. They don't hit home runs. They don't strike out a lot, but they don't walk a lot. They put the ball in play. It, it's kind of interesting to see what this front office is trying to do, playing in the ballpark that they play in. You know, if you if you if you can pull it down either line, you can hit it out. But but that that center field eats up a lot of baseballs, mm-hmm. and and you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to play small ball in that big ballpark, and and it's just not really translating. It, it's yesterday looking at their lineup again. I've mentioned this before. Their lowest average, their Adam Frazier, he had been up in the 280s. I think he was starting off play yesterday was batting 272. That was their lowest batting average, one through seven. So, so these guys get on base, not at a high rate, but they have high averages, which is great. You know, putting the ball in play, you think you can score some runs, force force a few more errors, score a few more unearned runs. Um, but it's just not been working out for them. And luckily, the matchup lately has been going more the Brewers' way. Yeah, it was Jordan Lyles against his old team last night. Pitched fairly well, gave up just one earned run in five innings. And go figure, you know, that was a move that I was really not super excited about the Brewers making. Um, I just feel like if you turn down a guy's option like that, you know, he was a young pitcher just coming into his prime and they turned down his option, you know, it's like, well, how, how high were they, how high on him were they then? And, and to bring him back now, and, and this is really crunch time for them, and and go figure, you know, he, he pitches, uh, his first two appearances are wins for the Brewers, so go figure. I'll tell you what, Christian Yelich homered a couple more times last night, 39 now on the year. Mike Moustakas hit his 27th in the fourth inning as well. And i got to ask you, who is Trent Grisham? Trent Grisham was originally drafted as Trent Clark, and hmm. uh, I believe out of Louisville. They got these so many young athletic outfielders um, um, in, in their system. It, it's easy to get them mixed up, especially when when one of them starts changing his name. But yeah, Trent Grisham is a guy that they're they're really hoping. I I feel like when they when they traded Jesus Aguilar and and they DFA'd Aaron Perez, that really took this this aspect of their team this energy they were they were always an energized team they kind of lost some of that and i think they were trying to reinvigorate this lineup with some youth and in, in a real spark it worked with keston Hira, and now so far it's been working with trent grisham and, and he was a guy really really struggled last year has been struggling with injuries really played well in rookie ball then then really struggled and then now this year started out at double a didn't start out great, but then started crushing the ball, got promoted to AAA, then he had 13 home runs in 34 games, and here he finds himself leading off for the Milwaukee Brewers, and uh, he had a three-hit day against the Cubs, uh, including a solo home run, and then yesterday he had his first multi-RBI game, um, had a few hits. The thing that's really impressed me with him so far is he, he's, he's known as a guy that's really going to drive the ball and kind of strike out a lot, and... Um, 
he hasn't shown that so far in the majors. He hasn't been overly aggressive. Like yesterday, guys on uh, second and third, he just put the ball in play, you know, and, and was able to drive in a couple runs. That is something that the Brewers have really been needing, and it's, it's nice to see a guy come up from the minors and, and produce. Oh, game two of that series this evening. You've got Stephen Bro on the mound for Pittsburgh. Milwaukee's going to counter with Chase Anderson. What do you expect in this one? Um, the Brewers have at times struggled against Stephen Brault, and at times they've hit him really hard. I believe his last time out, they hit him pretty hard. Um, so, so hopefully the familiarity there plays uh, in the favor of Milwaukee. Chase Anderson's last start against Pittsburgh went pretty well. Um, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm expecting, you know, if Chase can go do his deal of five innings, two, two runs or less, that should put the Brewers in a really good position to win this game. The Brewers' bullpen, though, has really been struggling. Josh Hader has been giving up runs. He gave up another run last night. Luckily, he's still locked down the save. But I can, I'm just really hoping the Brewers can, can, you know, Chase Anderson, it, that's another thing with him, just to hit on him really quick. He's got his ERA down like 3.7. Yeah. Who who saw that coming? Right. And so it's dropped nearly a half a run the last few weeks. And so he's been giving them some quality starts. Um, and and if they can just stay in the game and keep it close through five or six innings, um, Pittsburgh's bullpen hasn't been doing so well lately either. And the Brewers called up guys like Devin Williams just looking for some energy out of that bullpen. Another guy that, that throws 100 miles an hour. So hopefully, you know, that. That's always a good sign, and and I'm just really hoping from this game that that they just don't fall behind early, and and that kind of seems to be the key for Milwaukee. Well, I tell you what, I can't figure out the NL Central looking at the playoff picture now. Last Thursday, the Cubs were one hit by the Cardinals, and since then, they've ripped off four straight wins. The Cardinals are kind of up and down. At some points, they look really good. Right now, they're outside of playoff position. Milwaukee, two above 500. They're two games back in the wild card. They're fighting for playoff position. And suddenly, the New York Mets are the hottest team in baseball. Since the All-Star break, they've suddenly gotten right back into it. They've won 11 of their past 12, and their pennant odds, after being below 500 at the beginning of May, have gone from 70-1 to to 35-1 to in one week. I mean, the Mets are suddenly the hottest team in baseball, back above 500 for the first time in three months. Yeah, isn't that, have, have you ever seen a, a year in baseball, particularly in the National League, where it was more streaky? Every single team has been so streaky this year. Mm-hmm. Um, like you speaking to the Mets, um, a team like the Giants, just, I mean, that was more than a streak. I guess it was just like a huge prolonged slump they were right. in. And they go on this huge winning streak. And Nationals. Yeah, the Nationals streaky. Philadelphia has been streaky. The Braves have been streaky at times. Milwaukee comes out of the break. I believe they won... At one time, they had won eight out of eleven, and then they had lost six out of seven, and then now they, you know, they were able to get the win last night. So all these teams, like you said, St. Louis, all these teams have been so streaky. The Reds, yeah, um, and and that's what's made it so hard to really, to really lock down any any kind of real picks as to who is going to be in the playoffs. It just changes so much from week to week with these streaks. Run scoring has been a problem for them at some points this year. But I tell you what, how confident are you in their ability to make the playoffs right now? I mean, there are a lot of teams fighting for that wild card. Division's not out of it, but the Cubs are starting to make a little bit of space. You know, I I just, 
I, I don't mean to keep harping on it. I really did not like that Jesus Aguilar trade. And, yep. of course, he goes to Tampa Bay. He's already hitting home runs, drawing a bunch of walks. He, he's playing fantastic baseball for him, and that is exactly what they are needing right now. I don't know if it was just kind of one of those deals where his time was up in Milwaukee anyways. If You know, there's always underlying things that we, we might not know about. Going back to your question, that... Stuff like that is really what's making me nervous this year. When last year I was totally confident that they were they were going to be getting in. Um, from from September first on, I was just like, this team's got it, and I just don't quite feel if this team has it this year. Trent Grisham coming up and playing the way he has really really has helped boost my confidence. It's hard for me to say this, but I'm really kind of on the fence with this team. It's going to take more than Christian Yelich uh, hitting. You know, counting on him hitting two home runs. They barely won that game last night. They yeah. should have won that game easily. They have to be able to count on other guys to step it up. Yasmani Grandal has not hit a home run in nearly, well, in a month now. Yeah. Um, Mike Moustakis, he, he's been hitting well. He was kind of in a power slump. He got robbed of some homers in Arizona, got robbed of some homers. The wind was blowing in in Chicago. Um, finally hit one out last night. Actually got Robbed one too. Uh, Mark Reynolds uh, mm. for 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 the Pirates jumped up over the fence. That was a beautiful catch. Yep, back in the second inning. So Mustakas could easily have thirty homers. He's at twenty seven, twenty six, twenty seven, I believe. So, but they're going to need these other guys to more consistently contribute. Kesson here goes zero for five last night, and and he's a streaky player. But he's already has he already has nine errors this year. In mm. defense and bullpen last year were two things late in the season the Brewers were really counting on, and those are two things that are kind of holes in their team right now so there's just different things that last year they had locked down and it would really give you confidence and this year it's oh it's not really that way and and they have time to get it together and and they have they have a lot of talent in the minors that that could potentially uh produce but but that's always you know you can't count on that 100 percent well, I tell you what, I want to get to the Packers. They've started training camp. I want to pick your brain on that. Before we do so, though, let's take a trip down memory lane. I like doing this. I like going back and looking at old box scores, what have you. I like going back on a given day and looking, you know, what was my favorite team's lineup 10 years ago on this day? The Brewers actually were off 10 years ago today. So I went 12 years back to 07. That was a pretty good year for them. Certainly. Tell me if you remember quite a few of these players their lineup on august 6 2007 they led off with center fielder Corey hart how about him totally Corey hart player. just got inducted in the brewers walk of fame very well deserved as well jj hardy shortstop batted second and then ryan braun was the third baseman at the time he's still there yeah, certainly. Uh, he, he's got to be the only player from that team still on, other than Craig Council, the manager. I don't know if Craig was with him in 07. Craig I think Council he... actually pinch hit on okay. this day 12 years ago. He cool. pinch hit for starting pitcher Claudio Vargas. Cleanup batter, Prince Fielder. Played first base at the time. Kevin Mensch was in right field. I don't know if I remember him. Um, I believe Kevin Mensch was involved. Uh, he was part of the return for the Carlos Lee trade. Okay. So uh, that was that was a yeah, trade. Yeah, I think you're right. The one with Nelson Cruz. Yeah, that was not a good trade for Milwaukee. To I brought say that up last week when I was doing every team's worst trade in franchise history. That was my pick for the Brewers. That unless you have one that you can think of. Um, there are a few others that could possibly rival it, but but I I, I definitely could agree with that. 
I, I, I think you're, I think you're onto something with that. That, that was a horrible trade. The Brewers have been beneficiaries of some others, though. The Marlins, Christian Yelich for Lewis Brinson. Right. Yeah. It doesn't get much. It doesn't get much worse than that for the Marlins, or better for the Brewers. But, but that Carlos Lee trade, like you said, um, it, it kind of flies under the radar for terrible trades. Let's see. We have Jeff Jenkins, the left fielder. He played. Or he batted sixth at that time. Johnny Estrada was the catcher, and Tony Graffanino played second base. How about that? Yeah, Tony Graffanino. I always thought he looked like um, oh, there was the shortstop for for the red or for the Red Sox that um, I, I always forget his name, but I felt like they looked like identical twins. Anyways, um, Nomar. Yeah, Nomar Garcia Parra. Yep. I felt like Tony Graffanino and Nomar Garcia Parra were always like looking really similar. But um, Jeff Jenkins also just got inducted in the Brewers' uh, Wall of Fame, yep. so Wall of Honor or whatever they call it there. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, that there's some really notable players on that team. I was expecting to hear the name Ricky Weeks, but oh yeah, but um, I guess that might have been. He, he Maybe must, it was an off day. Yeah, must must have been an off day. Um, Estrada at, at the catching position, he didn't catch very long for Milwaukee. Um, that was definitely a time where they were struggling at that position, and I believe 08 was when they brought in uh, Kendall, Jason Kendall. Yep, yep, yep. And that's another name a lot of people forget about. Great player. Great player. In his time. Isn't that funny how these guys 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. how how quickly it, it, it rolls over and changes, and we got this kind of a youth movement in baseball especially. I mean, you think of some of the best players of the mid-2000s, yes, the average baseball fan today, especially younger generations, would they know who Jason Bay is? He was a big deal about 15 years ago, 10 years ago even, and a lot of people wouldn't know him right now. Yeah, Jason Bay. That's another name. That and then the Brewers version of Jason Bay was Jeremy Burnitz. Sure. And and he was a slug, slug, slugger. Yep. And so is Jason Bay. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, that game was in uh I was in Denver that day. Uh Coors Field was the host of this game twelve years ago. Milwaukee was seven above five hundred at the time, but they got beat six two by Colorado. Josh Fogg was the winning pitcher. And Chris Sperling later came in relief for Milwaukee. How about him? Yeah, yep. Another couple names that I remember. Um, Colorado had some real good names on on their roster that day. That, they had a pretty good team back then. Yeah, they were. They had some sluggers, some guys that were with them for a long time. Todd Helton, certainly. Todd Helton was certainly there for a long time. He's another guy a lot of fans this day and age may not remember, or a lot of younger fans may not even know. I guess that would have been just a little bit before Cargo's time, though. Mm-hmm. But Colorado, man, always with the slugger. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's go to football here before we hit the break. Packers have started training camp. How optimistic are you? What are you thinking? You know, there are. I find it so interesting how there there seems to be a lot of talk around how good this defensive secondary is going to be. Jair Alexander had some big games last year. Um, so far throughout camp, they've looked good. Um, it's nice that you know obviously there's going to be there's always some injuries there's always some freak injuries there hasn't been anything super catastrophic yet i think this offensive line could be like a secret strength for for the packers and keeping aaron rodgers healthy this year is going to be just absolutely I mean, obviously, that's everything. And the last two years, they've really struggled in that department, obviously. Brian Bulaga, I think he might be the most 
not just the most underrated offensive lineman. He might be one of the most underrated offensive players mm-hmm. in the NFL. He he currently owns the longest streak for uh, snaps without a pressure. Yeah. And I believe the Packers have the top two rated tackles by pro football focus in pass protection so so you know that's just not the best left tackle best right tackle that's the best two tackles so that's unheard of guys like billy turner guys obviously at left guard and and center the packers are really solid have some have some starters that have been around for a while so i really like the the ability for this offensive line to gel and then at right guard you know they're bringing in a new guy but but he has a lot of experience so he, he should fit right in there nicely and and so I'm looking for that offensive line to play ball to play well but one thing that it's kind of like the dark horse you know the the defensive backfield's definitely a dark horse but that defensive pass rush for the Packers could I mean that's going to be what makes or breaks this team obviously uh, with that 3-4 passing attack or you know passing defense it, it really starts with that with that rush up front and and from what I've seen from from uh, the Smith guys you know Preston uh, he's looked good and David Bakhtiari has been has been having uh, his hands full yep. in practice and he's been getting beat like I have not seen him get beat I mean not even by guys like Clay Matthews and Nick Perry, even Julius Peppers. Right. So the guys that I trust the most are the Packers' offensive line, and they're saying, you know, this this pass rush could be one of the better ones we've ever seen. I'm going to lean towards trusting those guys. I think this pass rush could really stand out, and um, we all know if, if you can have a good pass rush in today's NFL with a good offensive line, and obviously if you have Aaron Rodgers, I mean, those are three things that, that really could take you on a deep run in the playoffs. Well, I tell you what, Hard Knocks is going to start tonight. Speaking of NFL, getting a little bit closer. You a fan of Hard Knocks? You know, that's kind of funny. I didn't watch it for the longest time. And then they had all the episodes on YouTube. Um, about a year ago, I watched uh, the very first ever Hard Knocks with you know with Ray Lewis and mm. Tony Saragusa in, in that great Ravens team. Um, and that, that totally got me into Hard Knocks. And I was just going to start watching the Rex Ryan with the Jets Hard Knocks. Kind of going back in time. I watched the one with the Browns. Yep. And and, uh, so, yeah, I'm totally going to be watching, and I, I'm into Hard Knocks. What about you? I like the idea of it. I like the concept, which, by the way, can be traced back, in a way, to the Packers. It's got Packer roots because Vince Lombardi would actually film practice because he thought players perform differently when they're in front of a camera. In a way, that's kind of shaped how Hard Knocks has changed the NFL landscape. Very cool. And, of course, leave it to Vince Lombardi um, <laughs> to be the first one to play into that and you know talk about a guy that could that could get into a player's psyche you know that i mean he what a guy you know he could just read players minds and he always got the most out of his players and and uh it's interesting how he was kind of like an old school guy in Mm -hmm. a way but but with so many new ideas and and um just just you love his overall inclusiveness and 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 the fairness and treated everyone the same and um leave it to him to be the first one to be filming practice Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. By the way, I want to make this announcement before I forget and before we go to break. The Brewers and Pirates series finale tomorrow night will be carried here on ESPN-UP. We will have the ESPN broadcast. First pitch set for 7.05. Brewers and Pirates on ESPN-UP tomorrow. Appreciate you as always, my man, letting us know what's going on in Wisconsin sports, man. We need that insight. Appreciate it as always. I really appreciate the opportunity, and thank you so much for giving me the chance to come on and talk about it. It's my favorite. 
Let's take a time out. When we come back, one of the most successful high school basketball coaches in the UP is calling it a career, but is it just the high school level or is there something more on the horizon? I've got the interview that's going to answer all your questions next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. Guest is going to join me in the ESPN-UP phone line in just a moment. But first, your Sports Center update. Ezekiel Elliott informed the Cowboys this morning that he will not play a down in 2019 without a new contract. Last night, Orioles infielder Jonathan Villar became the fifth player in franchise history to hit for the cycle. He is the first Orioles since Felix P.A. back in 2009 to accomplish the feat. And finally, the International Basketball Federation has suspended former University of Ohio standout D.J. Cooper for two years after a urine test showed that he was pregnant. Cooper is playing professional basketball in Europe. FIBA announced his suspension after a drug test showed traces of HCG, a hormone that is made by the placenta during pregnancy. Cooper later admitted that the urine actually belonged to his girlfriend, who didn't know that she was pregnant at the time. That is your Sports Center update. Once again, glad to have you along on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, I tell you what, the search is on at Nagani High School. Who will replace Brandon Sager? Who is going to take over the minor girls basketball program? They have been wildly successful during Sager's tenure there. In his seven years at the helm, the minors went 104 and 49, including a 20 and 0 regular season just a year ago. Brandon Sager has officially resigned his position as girls basketball coach, and he joins us on the ESPN UP phone line. Brandon, I appreciate you taking the time. Tell me what went into this decision. Why was it the right one for you? Um, you know, I've been kind of had some aspirations to, to look at uh, possibly coaching at the next level someday. Um, have a, I've I've always had a lot of conversations throughout my basketball life with uh, with Troy Matson, the head coach, women's coach at NMU, and um, he reached out a few weeks ago and asked if I'd be interested in working with with him and their staff and kind of learning the ins and outs of the college game and, um, you know, put some thought into it, talk with family and, um, was able to, to work out a schedule with, um, with work that was, was gave me the ability to be able to do that. So, um, you know, I didn't want to look back and have regrets of not be, at least taking a look at it and, and learning and understanding some things that I don't know yet, um, about the game. Well, Brandon, congratulations on your new position as assistant women's basketball coach at Northern Michigan. You'll join Troy Matson's staff. Tell me about your relationship with him, what he's meant to you from a basketball standpoint over the last few years. Um, as far as him, uh, I mean, I've played for him, so I, I think we have a good understanding of each other already. And, you know, I've, throughout my coaching career, I've bounced a lot of things off of him. So um, I think it's kind of a seamless transition as far as us understanding each other. Um, so you know he's done a great job with with that program. Showed a lot of great consistency over the years uh, since he's been here. And uh, you know last year they were able to reach a national tournament. And um, you know just looking forward to continue learning the kind of the, the behind the scenes look of, of the college game and and being able to provide you know any input that uh, that I might be able to do to help. Well, Brandon, you said that you've dreamed of something like this. Now that you've had it, realize that you're an NCA coach. Tell me what the feeling is like. Has it sunk in yet? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a bittersweet, uh, letting go of, of what I've been doing for the last seven years of building that program. Um, but, um, 
You know, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I think I have a couple uh, tests to take here yet for NCAA uh, compliance and things like that. But, um, uh, you know, we, in less than a month, we start doing in, uh, workouts with when the girls get back for school. And uh, I think then it'll kind of hit me. And then probably more so in November that when I'm not stepping in, into Lakeview Memorial anymore, we'll really kind of sink in that I'm, I'm not there anymore and, and off to different frontiers, I guess. Well, Coach, let's talk about the roster Northern has coming in for the 2019-2020 season. Have you had any contact with the players so far? No, no. Uh, they're for for the most part, they're gone. Uh, you know, he tries to send them home as much as he can in the off season to, to be kids and get away for a while. And uh, so, not a whole lot. I know a few of them uh, on a you know personal basis, just from coaching against them. Um, but other than that, I haven't really had any contact with them. So, looking forward to getting to know them as uh, as the school year rolls around. Talking with Brandon Sager, formerly head girls basketball coach at Nagani. He is joining Troy Matson's staff as an assistant at Northern Michigan. Coach, let's talk about your time at Nagani. You built something really special there. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind for minor basketball? You know, I guess I never really thought it's kind of always been about the girls and about the program. Um, as far as my own personal legacy, I never, never really tried to seek any personal goals out of it, but um, like, you know, memories, I, I have the opportunity to coach a lot of great kids, um, you know, that were raised by great for great parents. Um, you know, I've never had any negative impacts at all while I've been there. Um, parents have been supportive. Administration's been unbelievably supportive of everything we, we do in our program and our players. And um, So it was, it was a very enjoyable experience, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss it and, and uh, being a part of that community, which really embraces basketball, as everybody knows. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to coach my daughter as one of those kids, so um, that was a, a pretty special experience. But, um, you know, leaving behind, I just, you know, hopefully I, I didn't achieve all the goals that we wanted to from a, from a, you know, putting things on the wall standpoint, but, uh, being able to impact kids, help them reach their goals, that was able to get, you know, some girls into the college level and, um, just developing those relationships that I communicate with a lot of those girls on a, on a regular basis, uh, day in and day out, and and with with questions about life or boyfriends, marriage, jobs, school, whatever it may be, um, you know just, that that was the joy I got out of it was somehow being an impact and helping guide them in their life in the direction they wanted to go. Have you had the chance to address your assistants at Nagani and some of the players? Are they aware of the situation? Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, my assist, my my assistant Rick Williams has kind of been with me through the thick and thin of this whole thing and involved in you know the decision and whatnot. And um, yeah, the rest of my staff know, um, and the players know as of last weekend. So um, like I said, it was it was bittersweet. It was uh, it was not not an easy thing to to do and to pull away just because there's a lot of great kids still in our program and and even more coming behind them. So um, you know, it just came down to. Um, you know, not wanting to look back and, and um, regret not at least taking a look at, at this opportunity. Um, this actually, in turn, a lot wouldn't think it would, but it's going to provide a lot more time um, for me to be able to follow my boys as, as um, you know, one's a senior and one's a freshman now. So um, I'm not going to miss any of their games this year, be able to be there for all, through all of that. So that was another factor that helped uh, kind of sway this decision. Well, what's the next step for you now, Coach, as you get set to be a college coach rather than high school? How do you prepare differently for it? 
Um, you know, my role is going to be, I guess, kind of less than what it was. I don't have to um, to go scouting, um, submit statistics, things like that. But um, I, you know, I'm going to he's going to try to involve me as much as he can in recruiting, um, which he's pretty well set already for this coming year. But hosting some girls on campus in uh, September on, on official visits. Um, Getting to know the system that he wants to do, there's a lot of similarities on things that I did because I learned a lot of the things from him. So some of that will, will be seamless, but just you know, understanding the girls and then all of the different uh, things that go along with uh, with the game at this level. Coach, I got a tough question here for you. Any favorite moment, memory, game, what have you? Anything that sticks out? It's always going to be special for you during your time as Nagani's head girls basketball coach. You know, there was a lot of them along with a lot of special kids, so I, I don't know that I could pinpoint just one. Um, you know, being like I said earlier, being able to experience some of that good stuff with my daughter was, was kind of special, and, and all of her friends along the way. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of great kids, um, and I, I don't I hate to single any of them out, but, um, so I, I'd rather not. Just But, I mean, it, it was all great. And, um, you know, like I said, to be able – you know, I've been getting flooded with texts from, from a lot of my former players and things like that. And so those are the kind of the special things that you know that you affected them. If they're, you know, they're willing to reach back out and, and share that experience with you or, you know, talk about the, the enjoyment they had you know, playing under me and things like that. So um, I, I just think the whole experience overall was, was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade anything or change anything if I look back on it. Brandon Sager is the former girls basketball coach in Nagani. He will be joined the Northern Michigan women's basketball staff this year as an assistant to Troy Matson. Coach, again, congrats on your new position and a great high school career. All the best to you going forward. Thank you very much, Shannon. I appreciate all the support you, you've done for us and uh, all, the, all that you do for the, for the game and the local kids. Let's take a time out. When we come back, speaking of great coaches, if you had your choice, you could build your NFL franchise around any active head football coach. Who would it be? I've got my top five. Hope you do, too. We'll discuss them next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, you can check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. I said I wanted to get to football, and we're going to, but I got a couple of things on baseball I want to throw in before we run out of time. First and foremost, this isn't a good thing about baseball, by the way. The second thing is, but this one is an unpleasant thing regarding baseball. I just saw the players' weekend uniforms. Major League Baseball for the last couple of years have been doing some really cool uniforms for players' weekend. Some teams are pretty good. Some designs aren't very good. But I tell you what, no one's design is very good this year. If you take a look at those player weekend uniforms, they are bland, boring, I might cry. Literally, these are uniforms that are never going to be worn again, just a couple of days for one weekend in August, and they are enough to make me cry. They are bland and boring. They are all black and white. The team logos are the same, the team word script and what have you on the jerseys, that's all the same, but the uniforms themselves are black and white, nothing else. No color, no razzle-dazzle. Nothing. The best part of Players Weekend had been the cool-looking uniforms. Little League-style jerseys, if you will. You get the nicknames on the back, at least the ones who choose to participate, but you have nothing as far as color schemes 
any kind of individuality. These are terrible. They tried to go for the NBA All-Star jersey looks, and it just came out looking awful. Baseball has an interest problem. This is the last thing they need to be doing. Just because it worked for basketball doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Bad move on Major League Baseball's part. Good note for baseball, though. Yesterday, the New York Mets swept a doubleheader for the Miami Marlins. That pushed them above 500 for the first time in three months. However, maybe the biggest story yesterday and the biggest feel-good story from yesterday was the debut of 23-year-old Asan Diaz, rookie second baseman with the Marlins. He was one of four players that Miami got back in exchange for Christian Yelich when they sent him to Milwaukee in January of 2018. Diaz was making his major league debut. He had a handful of family and friends in the crowd. The TV broadcast was interviewing Diaz's father when he came to the plate. And while his father was being interviewed, Diaz launched a 422-foot home run. First of his career in his first ever game, his family in attendance, and they just went nuts. We managed to get to this point, so we're, we're extremely happy for him. Is this an emotional day for you? Very, very emotional. What's more, that home run came off of Jacob DeGrom. I think you can hear somebody in the background say, did we just homer off DeGrom? It came in a losing effort, but no one was expecting a lot from the Marlins anyway this year, and the Mets are the hottest team in baseball, as we were alluding to earlier. But I tell you what, finishing the day with football. If you could build your NFL franchise around any coach in the NFL right now, who would it be? Who are the top five coaches in the National Football League? Just one of many ways you can look at this question. I tell you what, I've got my list, and it's changed a little bit here in the last couple of days. I tell you what, I might even have a top ten. I got a few guys that I could throw in there that maybe I'm not ready to put in the top five in that elite category, but I'd feel pretty comfortable with if they were running my team. And I'm going to go from first to fifth when I give you my list for more dramatic effect because we all know who number one is. If you had your choice of any NFL coach to run your team, is there any one of you, who among us would not take Bill Belichick? Is there anybody who wouldn't take him? Six Super Bowl rings, maybe the greatest coach of all time, certainly of this generation. He was once penned as being the wrong guy Robert Kraft could call and offer the Patriots head coaching job to because he went 37-45 and 45 with Cleveland. He won just one playoff game in five years, ironically, over the Patriots. But I tell you what, what sets Belichick apart is isn't just the number of Super Bowl rings. It isn't just the number of accomplishments. It's his ability to learn from his mistakes. His ability to correct wrong. I tell you what, everybody has made mistakes in their life. Doesn't have to be on the football field or related to coaching, but we all make mistakes. I certainly have made some, and Bilicek was like that in Cleveland. But he learned from his mistakes. And he went from a guy who was losing nine games a year in Cleveland to maybe the greatest coach of all time. Because since he's come to New England... You could probably count the number of mistakes in his almost 20 years as a head coach of the Patriots on two hands. I tell you what, my friends, I judge people far less for the mistakes that they've made than I do for being a repeat offender. 
and Belichick is far from a repeat offender. The only thing he repeats is winning championships. Belichick's system, no matter what kind of personnel he has, he always finds a way to win. The Patriots will always be in contention, and he has built maybe the greatest dynasty in NFL history. There is no one I would rather have coaching my team than Bill Belichick. Number two on my list, and to be honest with you, I could go either way with my next two. I think there's a consensus top three in the NFL right now. Best NFL head coaches. I would be comfortable with either guy at number two, but I'm going to go with Sean McVay over Andy Reid for a few different reasons. Sean McVay is exactly what the NFL wants to become. High-octane offense, and he knows how to do it with multiple weapons. He makes average players look good. Jared Goff, maybe even a below-average player, looked like an MVP candidate to some people. I was talking about that earlier. He rode him to a Super Bowl without Todd Gurley. They took C.J. Anderson, stuck him in the backfield, and they made it to a Super Bowl. All the while, maybe Goff's favorite target, Cooper Cup, was lost due to injury midway through the regular season. He produces high-octane offense. That's what the NFL is gearing towards right now. McVay is a proven winner no matter how empty the cupboard is. We talked about Kyle Shanahan earlier. Yeah, the cupboard's empty around Jimmy G., But the cupboard was empty at almost every position for Sean McVay during the postseason, and yet he still got the Rams into the Super Bowl. And I don't think the Rams are going to be as good next year, but their offense may very well be. Defensively, they're losing a lot of pieces. The offensive line is going to take a few hits, but offensively, they are still going to put up points with the best of them next year. By now, if I were choosing who to build my team around, I would pick Sean McVay over Andy Reid. For one thing, he's younger, and he's going to be in the league a lot longer. He's just 33 years old. He's got a longer tenure ahead of him in the NFL than Andy Reid does, if I'm looking long term. That doesn't mean he's a better coach than Andy Reid. I think they're pretty comparable. Andy Reid is up there because he's been in the NFL almost 20 years. He is one of the most successful coaches ever, albeit he's never won the Super Bowl. He's gotten about as close as you can while still being a Hall of Fame coach. He is seventh all-time in total wins, and the reason he's able to stay in the league so long and continue to be successful is because he changes his scheme to the way the league is trending. Andy Reid has a remarkable record when it comes to quarterbacks. He puts in a system that gets the best out of his signal caller. Keep in mind, when he was the head coach at Philadelphia, he was with guys like Donovan McNabb, Michael Vick. They had their best statistical years under him. Then he comes to Kansas City, Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes. Certainly, those are some high-end quarterbacks. How about a guy like Kevin Cobb? Remember him? He looked like a guy that could last in the NFL under Andy Reid. Andy Reid has stayed in the NFL so long, and he is always going to produce a team that's going to contend because he adjusts to the way the NFL is trending. He does not force his players inside of one system. He adjusts to the NFL, and that is what has given him a long career. So I could put Andy Reid at number two in my NFL head coach wish list, and I would sleep just fine at night. But because McVay is younger, and I believe he'll be in the league longer than Andy Reid, I'm going to put him at number two as far as my wish list for NFL head coaches. Number four and five are interchangeable as well. If you would have asked me this two days ago, I would have said Sean Payton would be the guy I would take fourth overall. I'm going to change that answer, though. I've thought about it. I think fourth overall, I would pick Pete Carroll to run my NFL franchise. Proven winner, ton of success. I know he had that blunder at the end of Super Bowl 49. Just run the ball. He pulled a Kyle Shanahan. Just run the ball. Yet Pete Carroll is always finding ways to turn his team into a winner. 
Another guy that was written off by NFL writers in the early 2000s. He knows how to get the most out of a lot less. I love coaches that can do that, that don't rely on their talent, that they make their talent look good, not the talent makes a coach look good. And does he have talent? Absolutely does with Russell Wilson. He's had some good wide receivers over the years. He's had an outstanding defense. He still does. But Pete Carroll is a great football mind. And he takes that talent and he consistently wins with it. Seattle is always going to be right there knocking on the door. And a few years, they're going to be doing more than that. A few years, they're in the Super Bowl. They've won a Super Bowl under him. I know he's approaching the end of his coaching career, but I would still pick Pete Carroll over Sean Payton to coach my NFL franchise. Payton I'm going to have at number five because he's an offensive genius. I really like what he does from an offensive standpoint. Granted, now he does have Drew Brees, and some of those Saints squads with Brees and Payton have underperformed in years. There have been a few seven to nine years for those New Orleans squads. But you can't deny that Sean Payton is one of the best offensive minds in football. That's the way the NFL is going right now. But maybe the biggest detractor of anything is how he handles himself on the sideline from time to time. His demeanor, poking the bear when he doesn't need to, not able to keep himself under control. Remember a couple of years ago during the NFC Divisional Round, he did the school champ mockingly at Vikings fans right before the Minneapolis Miracle happened. A couple of years before that, he did the choke sign at an Atlanta running back. His name escapes me. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Atlanta would go on to win that game. That running back was the one who sealed the deal. It's things like that. Sometimes his personality sucks, but he can coach, I tell you that much. And I would feel pretty confident with him as my head coach. Those are my top five NFL coaches right now. i got to give a few honorable mentions, though. Those top five might be the elite in the NFL right now, but a few guys that I'd still be very comfortable with. Dan Quinn, Mike Zimmer, we've mentioned them both in the show already. I would gladly give them the keys to my team. Both of them are winning through defense in an offensive heavy league. There's something to be said about that. They can flat-out coach. Doug Peterson from Philadelphia is another guy I would feel really comfortable with. Another guy who's excellent with quarterbacks. Two straight years, his number one QB goes down. One time on his way to an MVP season, he puts in a backup and one year rides him to the Super Bowl. Doug Peterson was a guy that was written off as a terrible hire before he even coached, before he even stepped on the field as head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Doug Peterson has more than proved them wrong. He has returned Philadelphia to being a perennial playoff contender, and he's brought him back from the Chip Kelly era. And the last one I want to throw up here, and again, there's probably a lot of guys I'm missing, a lot of guys that I'd still be happy with coaching my team. There are a lot of good coaches out here besides the ones I'm naming. But the last one I really want to throw up there because he deserves it is Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts. Last year, he got off to a 1-5 and five start in his coaching career. He had that boneheaded call where he was going to go for it on fourth and long from inside his own 40-yard line in overtime against the Texans because he didn't settle for ties. That's what he said from his own words. We don't settle for ties. They end up losing that game on a field goal because they gave Houston great field position. I thought that was one of the most boneheaded things Frank Reich has done. But just like Andrew Luck, he regrouped and he led that team to a torrid run down the back end of the season. And the way that you're able to control that locker room and rebound the way they did, there's something to be said for that. It's the exact opposite of what Mike Tomlin did last year. A year ago, I'd probably put Mike Tomlin in that top 10, maybe top 5 category, but he just lost complete control of that locker room last year. And locker room control is so important in the NFL, especially the modern NFL. I just wouldn't feel that comfortable if Mike Tomlin was coaching my team right now. I am fully confident in Frank Reich. And if they have the year that I think they're going to have, he very well is going to be top 4 on my list by next year, maybe even top 3. 
There's something to be said about Frank Reich and the job that he did rightening a sinking ship last year and turning Indianapolis into maybe the most optimistic football team going forward. That is our list, and that is our show. Once again, I appreciate you tuning in, as always. Hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Once again, I'm going to be back on tomorrow, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, right here on ESPN-UP, online with our app. John Michael Hovling of ABC10 will join me. Plus, he's bringing in a guest. I've got a brand-new sports guy, a co-host for John Michael. He's coming in tomorrow. You're going to be hearing a lot of him. That's coming up tomorrow here in the Sports Pen. Until then, my name is Tanner Hoop signing off from ESPN-UPWZAM in downtown Marquette, Michigan. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.